Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. Um, truly grateful to the Lord for this group of people, for our visitors, for the time that we have to, to worship Him and now to study from His Word together. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, fear is not a fruit of the Spirit. In fact, often it is a product of the flesh. It is a tool in the hands of Satan used against us. Because if we allow fear uh, in its worldly uh, and um, improper form to take root in our hearts, it can begin to corrupt our thinking, confuse our priorities, choke out our faith, and compromise our commitment to Christ. We talked last week about how fear uh, improper and worldly fear can fuel moral compromise. We looked at the example of Ahaz. We saw how when we fear like the world fears, we begin to think like the world thinks. And we begin to, to seek worldly solutions, seek out safety and security in the things that the world values and the thing that the world looks to uh, for security. But when we put our faith in the immoral and ungodly, we can be certain that they will become our downfall. With King Ahaz, we saw that when he feared Syria and Israel, instead of trusting in the Lord, he sought out the help of the king of Assyria, the great superpower of his day. And yet his misplaced fear and his misplaced faith caused ultimately his downfall as Assyria not only swept through Syria and Israel, but even into Judah itself. Uh, this, this river rushed over all its borders, coming up even to the neck, Isaiah says, even to the borders of Jerusalem. And so we saw last week that God must be the one that we fear above all else. He alone must be the one in whom we put our faith and find our refuge. But today I want to talk about a second way that Satan can use fear against us. And that's that fear fuels idleness. Sometimes fear doesn't lead us to doing things that are wicked and ungodly as much as it prevents us from doing things that are right. As much as it hinders us from doing the work of the Lord. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, when Paul told Timothy, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. His primary purpose in saying that wasn't because Timothy necessarily was being tempted to put his trust in the worldly and ungodly because he was being tempted by his fear to morally compromise with the world around him. Primarily, Paul is encouraging Timothy not to allow fear to hinder him in doing all that God would have him be doing in his service. He is encouraging Timothy not to allow fear to keep him from proclaiming the gospel and furthering the purposes of God's kingdom. And so when we think about worldly fear, we see that worldly fear paralyzes while godly fear motivates. As we mentioned before, not all fear is improper. Uh, fear, in fact, is a natural emotion that we are going to experience as part of life. But how do I know if the fear that I'm feeling is proper or improper? How do I know if it's something that I should be acting upon or not? Uh, how do I know if it's acceptable or unacceptable in the eyes of God? Well, I think one simple test, and this may not be the only way, but this is, I think, a way that we can determine 
uh, what the, the true source of that fear is, is to ask the question, well, what kind of action is this fear motivating? What direction is this fear pushing me in my service to God? Is it, is it tempting me to, to hold back in my service to him? Or is it spurring me on to further growth and service in his kingdom? In Proverbs chapter 22 and in verse 13, we, we read this proverb. It says, the sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. What, what does that proverb mean? What's the point? You know, so the sluggard doesn't say there's a lion outside. What, what are we going to do to take care of that? Do you guys have any ideas? Uh, you know, how, how are we going to keep our community safe with this lion? What the sluggard says is there's a lion outside. You can't expect me to go out there. Here this is his excuse. His fear becomes an excuse not to go out, not to do the work that God would have him be doing. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Listen, I didn't say it. God did. And he said it nearly 3,000 years ago. This is a problem and this is a danger that we as God's people need to be thinking about. Are we allowing fear to keep us from doing his work. For the servant of the Lord, fears and challenges should motivate us to redouble our efforts, in fact, to do whatever it takes to move forward, whatever it takes to further God's will and God's purposes, even in the midst of fears and challenges. Fear should not motivate us or, or cause us to put our service to God on hold until the line goes away. Consider the example of David and Goliath. Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Starting in verse 3, we kind of have the, the scene set for us. It says in verse 3, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountains on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. It goes on to describe his armor, the, his weapons. Uh, here he's six cubits and a span. That's, that's about a little over nine feet. He's basically twice the size of any Israelite man out there. It says that, that his spear was like a weaver's beam, that the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels. 600 shekels is about 14 to 15 pounds. So, so imagine this, this shaft with an oversized bowling ball at the end. That, that's what we're talking about here. And he is coming out and taunting the people of Israel. Look at verse 8. It says, And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You can understand here where this fear is coming from, right? There's a man twice their size. Surely on their own strength, none of them are, are his equal. 
and he's challenging them to head-to-head combat. But notice down in verse 16, it says, For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. How long does this go on? How many times does Goliath make this challenge? Morning and evening for 40 days. 80 times he comes out and he makes this challenge. And what are all the Israelites doing? Are you going to do anything? I'm not going to do anything. You know, well, somebody needs to do something. Well, maybe if we just wait this out, maybe you'll just give up and go away. There's a lion in the streets, and I'm staying put. For 40 days, nothing changes. They just sit there. Notice down in verse 32. It says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep with his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Brethren, this is the attitude of the servant of God. There were many other people more qualified than David. There were many other people who were trained, who were of greater stature, who had greater armor. In fact, David ends up, Saul tries to put armor on him, but it doesn't fit. And so he just goes without armor. And yet David is the one who looks at this lion in the street and says, God will take care of that. In fact, God has taken care of it before. When the lion came to the flock of David, what did David do? Did he go running the other direction? Did he stay inside and watch his flock get mauled? No. In fact, he ran after the lion and took hold of it. And by God's power and with his strength, took care of it. Brethren, that is the attitude of the servant of God. Whatever the challenge is, whatever the hindrance is, if it's getting in the way of our service to the Lord, then we're going to do the service of the Lord. We're going to serve Him. And we're going to trust in His strength, no matter how ill-equipped I may feel, to handle that challenge. Who are we in this story? Are we among those who cower from God's service and fear? or those who are empowered by his spirit to live courageously in our commitment to him and work diligently unto his glory. What's stronger, our faith or our fear? We see in David a positive example of this, but I want us to turn now to the passage that Luke read for us in Matthew 25, where we see a negative example of this. In Matthew 25, you may be familiar with the parable here where Jesus talks about a master leaving his possessions and the care of his servants. He gives to one five talents, another two, and to one, he just gives one talent. Um, I I won't go 
into depth in this parable, but, but just so we can get the proper perspective here, a talent is a measurement of weight. So we shouldn't picture him as getting this little coin. In fact, it was the largest measurement of weight in the Hebrew system. And so we're talking about a very sizable amount of money. You say, I'm just a one-talent man. That's like saying I'm not quite a millionaire. Um, if this is in, in silver, uh, we're, we're talking about about 15 years wages. So anyway, we have this one-talent man. And in verse 24, notice what he says. As his master comes and has him give account, he says in verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brethren, if we don't think that the, the danger of fear to our spiritual lives is very serious. This parable should be a wake-up call. What, what is this servant's excuse? What's his reasoning for not using what, what his master had given? He was afraid. And what's the, the response here? The master doesn't empathize with his servant's fear. He doesn't legitimize his actions in any way. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. Now, we might look at that and think, well, that, that's kind of harsh. You know, it's not like he took his master's possessions and went out and, and wasted them on riotous living or anything like that. But God sees beyond the surface and he sees the heart. And he is telling us, this is the heart of the wicked. And this is the type of heart that is going to be cast out of his presence. Notice in verse 26 and 27. It says, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. Well, what's he saying there? Here, he, he doesn't dismiss the man's fear altogether and say, no, that's not the case. No, you shouldn't have felt that way. In fact, he says, yes, that's true. Yes, I do reap where I have not sown and, and uh, seek out uh, fruit where I scattered no seed. But here, he says, how should you, you have reacted to that fear? In fact, that fear shouldn't have paralyzed you. That fear shouldn't have, have kept you from using what I had given. In fact, all the more, it should have motivated you to use what I had given you. There, I think we see this distinction between proper and improper fear. A fear that paralyzes, a fear that keeps us from doing what God would have us do is a worldly and ungodly fear. But it's not that there's no fear. In fact, we should have a fear that motivates us. A fear that motivates us to greater action, greater diligence, and making sure that we're using what our master has given us. 
It's very similar to, to godly sorrow and worldly sorrow that we read about in 2 Corinthians 7. Where we need to, yes, feel sorry for our sins. But there is a worldly sorrow that's self-focused, that tears ourselves down, and it's just concerned about the consequences that I'm experiencing. And it, it causes us to even go in more of a downward spiral when it's just kind of this self-pity sorrow that we're feeling. And yet there's a godly sorrow that motivates that causes us to recognize what our sins have done against God and motivates us all the more to be diligent in our service to him. I think it's very similar with worldly fear and godly fear. There's a worldly fear that paralyzes. There is a godly fear that motivates us to further action. I think as well, fear and worry or fear and anxiety have, have a very close tie together in this. Often our fears are not grounded in the present but in the future. Our fears are not spurred on simply by real things that we are facing right here and right now. Our fears are driven by potential dangers and potential catastrophes that we may or may not actually confront in the future. It's like us being that sluggard and looking out the window and saying, well, I, I can't see the, the lion right now, but I know he's out there somewhere. And I probably shouldn't go out just in case I do happen to, to encounter him. And so we end up allowing imaginary future fears to paralyze us. Fears of what might happen. And many times we fear things and worry about things that never do happen. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks to us about this. In Matthew 6 and verse 27, he says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? This kind of fear, this kind of worry, doesn't help anybody. It's not productive. It doesn't motivate. All it's going to do is damage. It does no good, only damage to us. In fact, that kind of fear and worry can end up doing more damage than the actual thing that we feared to begin with. Aaron recently has been studying uh, in, a, in a book with some ladies from the community on Wednesday nights called Calm My Anxious Heart. And there's a point in the book where the writer talks about um, a, a Russian woman who, who wrote a book about her time in imprisonment for 13 years during the rule of Stalin in the Soviet Union. Six of those years were spent in solitary confinement. But this writer says, she said that the most difficult time in her life was not the horrendous suffering during years of imprisonment, but the three weeks of waiting prior to her arrest. The uncertainty and anxiety she felt as she and her family waited on the unknown was torture. Why was this? The writer says, perhaps because waiting for an inevitable disaster is worse than the disaster itself. This woman says she went through 13 years of imprisonment under the rule of Stalin, six in solitary confinement, and the worst torture she ever endured was the three weeks of anxiety and worry leading up to that. That should wake us up. Many times we torture ourselves over things, in our cases, that may never even happen. 
That's not productive. That's not godly fear that drives us on to further service to him. That's the tool of Satan in our hands to tear us down and keep us from being who God wants us to be. Matthew 6 and verse 34, the very end of this section, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Brethren, don't let your fears of the future rob you of the present. And most of all, don't let them compromise your service and your commitment to God. It's not worth it. Worldly fear is ultimately fueled by worldly priorities. Worldly fear doesn't just reveal where our faith is. It reveals where our values are. It reveals what is most important to us. If you're here in Matthew 6, notice some of the things that Jesus says as he speaks about fear and anxiety and worry. It says in Matthew 6 and verse 25 as he begins this section, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What's Jesus' reason for not worrying, for not being anxious? Well, in a little bit, he's going to get on to talking about how God's going to take care of us. But you notice that's not the first reason that he gives. There in verse 25, he says that we should not be anxious about these things because is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Because this isn't what's most important. God hasn't promised us that we're not going to experience hunger. He hasn't promised us that we're not going to experience thirst and, and, and suffering and hardship. But he has told us there's something much more important than that. Look later on in uh, verse 31 through 33. Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Why shouldn't we be anxious about these things? He says, those are the things the Gentiles seek after. Those are the things the world seeks after. Those are the things that, that people who are not God's children are worried about and concerned about. That's what's most important to them. You need to have something else that is most important to you. Something that trumps all of that. You need to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's what life is truly about. And that is what is most important. Look just a little bit farther in Matthew chapter 10. We made mention of this passage in our Bible class today. Jesus, as he is sending out the 12 to go preach. In Matthew 10 and verse 28 says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Why does he tell them that they shouldn't fear? Is it because they're not going to die? Is it because they're not going to experience suffering? Well, no. In fact, we find out that many of these disciples that Jesus is speaking to do eventually give their lives for the faith. And for their witness of Jesus. What's his reasoning that they shouldn't fear then? Not just because it's, it's not going to happen. But because there's something more important. Don't fear them that can kill the body. 
whether we're talking about people or whether we're talking about some organism, don't fear that which can kill the body. Fear him who can kill both soul and body in hell. There is something so much immeasurably more important than the health and well-being of our bodies, than our physical life here on earth. And that's our souls. That's our relationship with God. Let me ask a question for us to ponder. What would the world look like right now if we treated sin the way we have treat, treated coronavirus? Can you imagine that for a moment? You know, sin has a 100% infection rate. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, sin has a 100% death rate for those who do not go to the great physician for the cure. And yet too often we step out of our front door and go into the world without giving a second thought to the danger that it poses. And there are times that we even show symptoms of having it. And we kind of slough it off because, well, everybody makes mistakes. It's not that important. Brethren, what does that reveal about our priorities? If, if I hear that there's a 1 in 100 chance that I'm going to catch this virus, and there's a 1 in 100 chance if I catch it that I, I'm going to die from it, I, those aren't actual numbers. I'm just giving a, a scenario here. You know, then, then let's shut down the world. Let's board myself up in my house, and I'm not going to get out. And yet... How do I treat my spiritual well-being? What does that say about what is most important to me? Let, let me ask this question, which will hopefully put some of this into perspective for us. Over the last six months that we have been in this shutdown, has your spiritual life suffered? Has your service to the Lord been hampered by it? Brethren, if the answer is yes, then I need to make some changes. Because what that means is that I haven't been keeping first things first. And I can't tell you what those changes need to be. This is something that we're each going to have to examine, whether or not the answer to that is yes in our life. I can't tell you what changes need to take place, but I can tell you that your spiritual life and your service to God is infinitely more important than your physical health and safety. And we need to make sure that we're acting like it. Brethren, we cannot claim to be Christians and yet let the world determine what our priorities should be. Look for a moment with me in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 12. Here, notice what Peter says about the hardship and suffering that we're, we face as Christians. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If anybody suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Brethren, when the shutdown began, we as a society talked a lot about essential workers. These are, are people whose jobs were important enough that they needed to continue doing that work no matter what the danger was. And if one of these people, a doctor, a nurse, a surgeon, a policeman, were to catch the virus in the line of duty, we wouldn't look at them and say, how ridiculous is that? How foolish was it of them to be out there doing that and to get the virus? But if you go to church and you get the virus, oh boy, then you are just being foolish and reckless and you should have been staying at home. Brethren, that's the way the world thinks. Where are our priorities? The fact is we are all essential workers. You are an essential worker and you are an essential worker and I'm an essential worker in the kingdom of God. And if we allow any fear, if we allow any hindrance to keep me from doing the work of the Lord, to keep me from serving God's people, from building up his body, from furthering his purposes in the world in which we live, then our priorities aren't what they need to be. Yes, take reasonable precautions. Wear masks. Uh, I encourage everybody here, in consideration for the well-being of one another, to, to wear a mask. Keep social distance. Wash your hands. Take whatever precautions you need to. But do not let that get in the way of your service to the Lord. What cost am I willing to pay? You know, every decision has a cost. We call this opportunity cost. You have two options and you can't choose both. You're going to have to choose one. That means that you're going to have to sacrifice the other. And so every decision we make reveals something about what's most important to us. If I choose A instead of B, I can't then honestly continue to say that B overall is most important to me. Because I've chosen A. So when it comes to decisions about our service to the Lord, our spiritual health and our physical health, our work and role within the body of Christ and our concern for the physical dangers that confront us in society, those decisions are going to say something about what's most important to me. What cost I'm willing to pay. Which one I'm willing to give up for the sake of the other. Matthew 16, verse 24 through 26, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Can I plead with you for a second? If you've allowed the fear of this virus and concern for your physical health and the physical health of people around you to hinder your service to God and to compromise your commitment to his people and his body, then please repent. Turn back to him. Put first things first. Because nothing is so important that it's worth neglecting our eternal souls. Nothing is so important that it is worth compromising our service to the Lord. And brethren, there is work to be done. God has a purpose for us. The reason we are here on earth is because he wants us to be a shining light in this community. He wants us to bring people to him. And let there not be any lion standing in the street that gets in the way of us doing that. Whatever we have to do, online, with masks, whatever we need to do, let's make sure that when a fear arises, instead of allowing that to paralyze us, we allow it to motivate us to redouble our efforts, to find new ways to reach out and to do what we need to be doing as God's people. For the Christians of the first century, this was not a hypothetical choice that they were making. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, as Jesus speaks to the church in Smyrna, he tells them exactly what they should expect. And yet, there in verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Why was it that he's telling these Christians not to fear? Is it because they weren't going to die? Is it because they weren't going to suffer persecution? In fact, he tells them point blank, you are going to suffer. And there are going to be some of you that are going to die. But don't fear, because if you are faithful unto death, you will receive a crown of life. Christians in the first century assembled and worshipped and went out and proclaimed the gospel in their communities and shined God's light with the constant threat to their lives. And not only their lives personally, but their family, their children, their spouse. And yet they did that because they recognized that there was something so immeasurably more important than their lives here on earth. So what was God's message to these Christians? Was it keep your head down, hold tight, wait until the lion goes home? No, it was be faithful. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Brother, I can't tell you exactly how each one of us individually needs to handle this situation. But I can tell you this. If your spiritual life has been suffering because of this, then something needs to change. Because there is something immeasurably more important than our physical health. It's our souls. 
and our relationship with the Lord, our work in his kingdom. Dave's about to lead us in a song. Dave, I believe that's 277. Is that right? Or did you change? Actually, let's change that to 524. Okay, we're going to change it to 524 if you want to go ahead and turn your, your songbooks over there. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Has Satan been using fear against you? Has he caused you through fear to bury your talent in the ground? If so, dig that back up today. Don't stand before your Lord on Judgment Day and say, well, you know what you read in, in the ledger about 2020? You know, well, you can understand. No. Our fear in Satan's hands is going to keep us from being who God wants us to be. And so if you recognize today that there's some repentance that needs to take place, some change that needs to take place, if it's of a public nature, there's any way that we can help you in that, that's why we're here. To help us in our service to God, to be who he wants us to be, to further his purposes, and to be able together one day to spend eternity in his presence. And so if you're subject to the Lord's invitation, if you need to ask for the prayers of these brethren, if you need to commit your life to the Lord for the first time in baptism and have your sins washed away, we want to offer you that opportunity right now. If you will, please stand as Dave leads us in this song.